This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Uh, Dr. David Rothschild is an economist with Microsoft R&D and he is standing by. Uh, I don't believe, not sure if David is from the Rothschild banking dynasty. Uh, well, I'll ask. Uh, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, even if he's not, it's cool to have him uh, with us. We're very excited. Uh, anyway, David uh, Rothschild and uh, PredictWise has come up with a system of data collection and analysis that can be used as a prediction tool. And uh, so we'll discuss the U.S. presidential election. Obviously, that's something that many people are... Um, interested in uh, predicting and betting on and, and so forth. So we'll, uh, we'll dive into that in mere moments. In, me- in the meantime, we have our good friend Ian Robertson on the other side of the glass, twisting dials and knobs and helping to fly this ship into the evening and straight on till morning. And remote viewer, story producer Albert Vinzel is here running our Hangout on Air. And uh, if you'd like to stream this radio program live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top or near the top of the feed and find the tweet containing the HOA link. And you just click on it, and voila, you're watching a radio program stream live on YouTube. Uh, just a, a brief programming note next week on the program, the legendary Jim Mars will be returning to the program to help us uh, commemorate a very somber occasion, the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, speaking of 9-11, it's uh, just one more week, one more week, and it's here, your last week to order tickets in advance uh, for my exclusive live event, Where Did the Towers Go?, featuring Dr. Judy Wood, a Strange Planet Productions and Conspiracy Culture presentation, Where Did the Towers Go?, Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11, that's Sunday, September the 11th. Next week, from 1 to 4 p.m., 1 to 4 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. Tickets are $20 in advance. 
So get them now because you'll pay $30 at the door. Uh, to order online, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca, live events page at strangeplanet.ca, or you can visit uh, conspiracyculture.com. Where did the towers go? Dr. Judy Wood, Sunday, September the 11th, here in Toronto. Hope to see you there. Uh, my guest and I are about to discuss uh, pioneering academic peer-reviewed research into prediction markets, uh, along with polling and online social media data that gives meaningful results. We're going to get into the upcoming events, uh, including who will be the next president of the United States. But we can also talk World Series for all you ball fans. I uh, would be very interested to know what the handicap is on my Toronto Blue Jays and uh, perhaps the Chicago Cubbies. Hey, they're slightly overdue. They haven't won a World Series since 1908. That's the year Leo Tolstoy died, for those of you keeping score. Dr. David Rothschild is an economist at Microsoft Research in New York City. He has a Ph.D. in Applied Economics from the Wharton School of Business. Hmm, the Wharton School. Who else attended there? Hmm. Oh, yes, Mr. Trump. Uh, That's at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. His primary body of work is on forecasting and understanding public interest and sentiment. Related work examines how the public absorbs information. He writes extensively in both the academic and popular press on polling, prediction markets, social media and online data, and predictions of upcoming events. Most of his popular work has focused on predicting elections and and an economist take on public policy. After joining Microsoft in 2012, he has been building prediction and sentiment models and organizing novel experimental polling and prediction games. This work has been utilized by Bing, uh, Cortana, and Xbox. And he correctly predicted 50 of 51 electoral college outcomes in February of 2012, average of 20 of 24 Oscars from 2013 to 2015, and 15 of 15 knockout games in the 2014 World Cup. Impressive. He's also a fellow at the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia and the Penn Program on Opinion Research and Election Studies. PredictWise aggregates, analyzes, creates predictions on politics, sports, finance, entertainment. They created PredictWise because they thought it would be interesting and informative for people to better understand the likelihood of certain major events occurring and to have that information presented in a manner that is easy to comprehend. Dr. David Rothschild, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right. So um, you study the collection of individual level data for predictions, aggregation of that data into prediction, and usage of predictions for politics, sports, finance, and entertainment. That's quite a mouthful. Explain that uh, in plain English, if you could. Uh, Sure. So I think a lot about... Uh, predictions. And then when I think about predictions, I think of them as a type of market intelligence. It's something that people want to know about an upcoming event in order to do something about it. And so I think a lot about how people provide information that will ultimately find useful for it. And it goes down to the individual. It goes to them answering poll questions or uh, corresponding in a market or providing Uh, some sort of opinion in social media data, or more passively, it involves the actions of people, whether or not they buy a particular product or whether or not uh, some event occurs that people are part of. And the kind of step that you go after that is to say, 
how do I aggregate that into uh, the prediction about what's going to happen? Uh, and the next step after that is thinking, uh, well, now that people have this uh, timely and flexible and hopefully accurate prediction, how do people actually use that? And actually, a lot of times they don't. So a lot of the most cutting-edge work that you're thinking of as far as big data goes, uh, it involves data collection. And then occasionally people turn that into something that is uh, market intelligence. And even rarer do people actually use all of this uh, big data that we've been collecting that has been turned into market intelligence to actually make business decisions much differently than we made business decisions a generation or two ago. So, and so that's the process I think about every day. Right. Oh, uh, before I forget, uh, are you related to the Rothschild banking dynasty? Uh, no, no, <laughs> okay. not in any way. You, you know I had to ask that question. Do you get asked that a lot, by the way? Um, uh, very rarely, um, to <laughs> okay. be honest. I get, I get a lot of Twitter trolls who, uh, who ask about it, but otherwise in person or on the phone a lot less often. All right, not trolling, just, you know, it's uh, yeah. just an interesting name. No All right, in an interesting lineage. Now, um, how is what you dif- do different than, for example, uh, by polling, whether we're talking about an online poll or, where we're, or whether we're talking about um, um, a telephone, direct, uh, or even robocall polling? How is it different? How do you collect your data? Yeah, so for one thing, I'd say that I, a lot of stuff I'll talk about tonight, regardless of, of where, where, regarding where you want to go, I could talk to you about uh, you know, unique data collection. A lot of the unique data collection that I do focus on uh, is in more advanced techniques. So thinking about not as much about traditional polling with telephones and, and uh, random and representative groups, but saying what's going to happen next. So I work with a lot of polling companies over how does online polling work? How do uh, samples of people who have clearly uh, opted in to answer these questions, they're not random, they're not representative, uh, such as you know, people who answer internet polls on the front of websites, or people who uh, log on to internet panels that collect people over time. What's the analytics that we need to do to overcome the, the obvious non-representation of those users? And then, when it comes to more found data, less about the work that I'm doing to collect data, but more about just the data I love to, to play with and think about. I like to get into market data. Uh, that answers a lot of questions that polling tries to answer, uh, but it answers differently. So prediction markets are a big, uh, big favorite of mine. These are markets where people are buying, selling uh, futures contracts on upcoming events, no different than contracts that people have to buy a barrel of oil in uh, you know, six months. Uh, but instead of forecasting how much they think that barrel of oil is going to cost in six months, uh, there's a contract out there that is worth $1.00. If Donald Trump gets sworn in as president in uh, January 20th, 2017, it's worth zero dollars. If not, the price that people are willing to pay for that contract, and there's multiple variations of those contracts sold in markets around the world, uh, those are pretty telling uh, to this kind of subjective uh, probability that uh, the general population and, and the population of traders are, are giving to uh, that possibility, that outcome occurring. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, and he is a, an economist with Microsoft Research and Development and PredictWise. Now, we should point out that this is uh, a tool or a resource uh, that is used by uh, news outlets like Fox and MSNBC and BuzzFeed and the Financial Times and, and Washington Post. Um, 
do other um, uh, pollsters utilize uh, your data, for example? I mean, do they use that to help them formulate their 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 polling data or their uh, their approach to a poll? It's a great question. So um, let me let me put it into two different ways. And and one thing I would say is that certainly a lot of the research that we have done into understanding uh, newer techniques in polling have reached the polling community. And that's always very exciting for someone who's coming more from the academic side. Uh, for instance, uh, we, I've done a lot of research on question design, and I focused on asking people this question. Who do you think is going to win the election rather than the traditional who are you going to vote for in the upcoming election? I've proven that question is very useful, that it aggregates very nicely when done in a good manner. And so a lot of major polling companies have incorporated that. Uh, otherwise, other ways in which we've worked is that we've worked on new statistical methods for aggregating polling data, which a lot of the major polling companies have also employed. So that's great. Um, but there's another part, which I think is trickier, um, and which is that we have predictions about what's going to happen. And we know that polling companies are very well aware of what those people who create forecasts are saying uh, when they create uh, their individual snapshots. And it's an open question as to whether or not our predictions actually influence uh, what pollsters come out with. There's a couple of different levers uh, that pollsters can play with when they get their raw polling data, or even when they're thinking about who they're going to ask their poll to. And it's definitely one that we're always trying to study, whether or not our forecasts may actually affect uh, the way that polls go out and are conducted and the answers that pollsters actually give. The concept, the worry, is something called herding, which says that pollsters, they get a random sample of people and that says Trump is up by six. They're like, oh, man, I'm a little too nervous to print that. I see the predictions are saying Trump is less than likely uh, to win, and they pull their data back in a way that makes it so that Trump is up by one or two or maybe even down. Does that happen? Uh, well, it's not overwhelming. Uh, the evidence looks to say that's pretty unlikely, but it's always something that we're looking out for. Well, it is interesting because if you look at, for example, the L.A. Times, and uh, the L.A. Times has Trump up by three, two, three points. Uh, he's been trending very slowly, but up. And uh, even among the African-American vote, uh, L.A. Times uh, reported Trump at 14 percent nationally when the rest of the uh, the polls were saying Trump was somewhere around anywhere from zero, maybe one, two, three percent, certainly the low single digits. Such disparity. We had a recent Ipsos uh, poll, uh, which, you know, is is a pretty credible poll. They have Trump up in Wisconsin. They have him up even in Maine, New Hampshire, Michigan, uh, which is totally out of line with, with other polls. So, you know, the polling is all over the place. Maybe we can uh, address a little bit of that as well when we come back. And then we will get to the crux of the matter. Predict-wise with Dr. David Rothschild. Who is he predicting or what does the data, not his prediction, but what does the data say? Who will be the next president of the United States? We'll find out when we come back. Stay with us. Poking Holes in the Darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, economist at Microsoft Research and Development. And the uh, the website for PredictWise is predictwise.com, predictwise.com. Uh, .com. All right, so let's cut to the quick. What uh, What is the uh, the Republican nominee's chances at uh, winning the White House, David? The Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is at about 25 percent, uh, with Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, at about 75 percent. And this is an interesting thing to think about, to say, what does that mean? Um, well, on one side, it is incredibly high probability of victory, uh, 75% for the Democratic nominee uh, before Labor Day. Generally, historically, people don't pay that much attention uh, to elections prior to Labor Day. That's the old saying. Uh, but, of course, not truly the case for, for a lot of people in America at this point, though still a surprising amount of people aren't obsessed as probably uh, many of the people you and I know. Um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, Clinton had been flirting with a much higher numbers. Uh, the race, the race has uh, tightened a little bit. The polls have tightened uh, a lot uh, over the last uh, few uh, week, week and a half. Um, and so uh, this is a non-negligible probability that Donald Trump is the next president of the United States. So about 25 percent odds uh, for him yeah. making, uh, yeah. being successful, winning the White House. Now, if one were to simply look... Uh, and, and, you know, the national polls don't tell the story because you have to go state by state. They each um, have an allotted number of uh, electoral college votes, depending on how many um, congressmen they have or House representatives. Uh, so if you look at the electoral college map, it's pretty clear Hillary has a much, uh, a much clearer road to the White House. Uh, there's no margin of error for Trump. He has to win all of the states that Mitt Romney won in 2012, and then steal a couple of the, you know, from the big red wall, the, the, the uh, whether, it, and, and then also the swing states, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, North, uh, uh, North Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. He, I mean, he, there's no margin of error for him. However, um, as you mentioned, the, the polls are tightening. Even uh, Ipsos, a pretty credible poll, now has Trump uh, within the margin of error in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. So, uh, I mean, what do we what do we take from that? I mean, is it close? Is it not close? Uh, well, these you brought up like forty questions in the last few seconds. So let me see how many of those <laughs> I can get through. I do that sometimes. The, the first thing I could say is is look, um, the, the race sounds a lot like it sounded like in 2012. In 2012, we were talking about the Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, needing to carry Florida, Ohio, and Virginia, and that enough small states would probably follow should he carry those three states. And he ended up winning uh, none of those, obviously, um, but holding on to everything kind of harder than that, uh, North Carolina being the next swing state in line. Donald Trump needs to win Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has kind of leapfrogged Virginia this year as being 
something that is actually slightly easier for him to win due to demographic uh, considerations, uh, the Latino population in Virginia versus uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and just all sorts of ways in which he's connecting to different people. It's going to be more likely, if he can win, that he can ask to do it by winning Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Now, uh, the second point I'd say is that uh, you talked about uh, the Ipsos poll, and you talked previously before the break about the USC poll. Uh, the USC poll is fascinating. Uh, I don't know how technical your crowd wants to get on this, but the USC poll is a panel. It's a very small group of people. They're polling from about 5,000 people, and they're polling 400 people a day. That's a lot, and it's very repetitive. But uh, they have been several points closer to Donald Trump the entire time, and what I will say is that they're doing some techniques which are a little questionable about how they're essentially weighing this group, non-representative group of people to the general population, including weighing them by their 2012 vote. And let me tell you this. People have a very hazy recollection of who they voted for uh, four years ago. Uh, and it changes a lot about how they feel about the guy who won and the guy who lost. Is that true? Um, I, I and, find that hard to believe, David, oh, yeah. that people can't remember yeah. who they voted for. Well, I, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek when I say that. Okay. People, some people don't remember who they vote for, and some people change who they say they voted for. And so the best example I can give you is that there is some polling done in uh, June and July of 2009. I can't remember the exact numbers, uh, but basically they asked people who they voted for, and they got something like 70 to 80 percent of people saying they voted for Obama. Obama had huge popularity coming off his victory. People want to say they voted for the winner. And, and this also fits in another well-known pattern, which is that if you ask people if they voted, uh, whereas about 60 percent of the adult population uh, eligible to vote votes, uh, roughly 80 percent will claim they voted right after the election. So uh, people will answer in a way that they deem socially desirable exactly uh, when they the, answer polls well the, which harkens goes, back to right the to your next point yeah. which is uh, on the Ipsos poll okay um so, uh, so which is to say that uh, what we have seen is that donald trump does better on online polls versus telephone polls uh this was about a three or four point difference during the primary uh where he was simply doing better on places where someone talked to the internet rather than talked to a human being. And the assumption is that while there's a lot, a lot of other stuff tied up into it, uh, because internet polls have a different group of people, it's a different sample, as well as being a different way of contacting them. There is this worry about social desirability bias, which says that people may be embarrassed to tell a human being they're voting for Trump, but they feel more comfortable telling the internet they're voting for Trump. Exactly. Ipsos, is an internet-based poll. It has been leaning more towards Trump, and internet polls in general have been leaning a little more towards Trump. It's been a little tighter than general, closer to about one to two percentage points. And so what I'll say about that is that definitely could be a thing, but at this point, it's still not enough of a thing that even if it was true, it doesn't necessarily cover as much ground as Mr. Trump needs to cover. Um, but it definitely is something that could end up helping him a little bit. Now, there is a, a flip to this, which is a worry, which says that Donald Trump could outperform the polls if there's this social desirability bias where people are afraid to poll for him. But the flip of that is that if people are afraid to tell people they're voting for him, 
that does not do well for him as far as spreading the word, as far as convincing other people to vote for him, as far as people donating, as far as people volunteering their time, Interesting as point. far as people actually showing up at the polls on Election Day. Uh, if they're too embarrassed to tell people about their support, that may be a problem uh, come Election Day uh, for actually uh, votes. All right. And we mentioned the social desirability and, and uh, people refer to the Bradley effect. And back in the early 80s, yeah. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley was running for governor. He was, he's an African-American and uh, or was. I'm not sure if Mr. Bradley is still with us. Uh, but uh, he was ahead in the polls going into the gubernatorial election. Uh, but then ended up losing, which was a real head-scratcher because all the polls indicated that Tom Bradley was going to win. And uh, again, that was the social de- desirability bias. People, when they were polled uh, on the phone, I suppose, uh, you know, wanted to, to be socially desirable. And so they said, yes, I am voting for Tom Bradley. But are you saying or, or some have said that there's no evidence of a Bradley effect or a social desirability bias uh, in this election, but you're saying perhaps there is. If anything, I would say, let's be clear, if it exists, it's very minimal at this point. And there's also a key part, which I, I, I need to add here, which is to say that while Trump did better in the online polls than the uh, telephone polls in the primary, the primary actually described his actual outcome more accurately, which is to say the online polls actually overshot his support. So there is a certain difference. It could be driven by the sample. It could be driven uh, by the social desirability bias being shown in the way that people contact it. There's a slight difference, but it's much more negligible in the general election than it is in the primary election. As I said, if even if it exists right now, it would be way too small. Uh, if the election were held today, the polling is, is way too strong in Hillary Clinton's favor to expect uh, an error that large uh, to carry Trump to victory should the election be held today, with, of course, uh, this 25 percent uncertainty really is pending on uh, what happens between now and election year, what happens in the next 60 uh, to 65 days. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, and it's predictwise.com, predictwise.com. It's interesting that the... uh, the handicapping here, 25 percent uh, Trump, 75 percent likelihood that Hillary will win. Uh, the, it's, this, it's consistent with the 75 percent um, prediction made by PredictWise that Brexit would fail during the last week. Uh, and yet we know what happened there. Brexit went, went on to, uh, to win. Um, let's talk about that for, for a moment. What happened there? It's a great question. And so let me let me make a few distinctions between Brexit and the election uh, in the U.S. first, which is to say that uh, the uncertainty that we were seeing going into Brexit, uh, that was a, a, a kind of different uncertainty in the sense that it was wholly based on there just isn't that much information. It's Election Day. Uh, a lot of the information that we do have is very close. It's almost like you're rolling a four-sided die and three sides says remain and one side says leave. What we're looking at here is if the election were held today uh, with the mass amount more information we have, uh, the history of elections like this versus the history of elections like Brexit, the uh, polling combined with markets, combined with the fundamental predictions that we know how to make, 
uh, says that the election were held today, Hillary Clinton would be uh, about 99 percent to win the election today. Uh, this uncertainty is really about uh, what will happen between now and Election Day. Is accounting for the possibility uh, that something happens that makes uh, Donald Trump stronger? An October surprise. A, a problem. What? Like an October surprise. Uh, uh, another Some WikiLeaks sort of drop. Surprise. Yeah. Something something drops that really changes the dynamics. If the dynamics continue as they were as they are right now, uh, Clinton is an incredibly strong position. Uh, and the other thing which I would say is that is is that look, uh, Brexit was uh, trending uh, heavily towards leave up until uh, the about the last 24 to 48 hours in the polling data. Um, the markets uh, looked at the history of these types of sovereignty elections and said generally there's a big push towards uh, remain, towards stability, towards the end. There's a lot of undecided voters who generally break towards stability. That was the gamble that the markets were making. It proved not to pan out, of course. Um, Donald Trump at this point is not leading in the polls, and the markets are not then kind of making a, a statement against that. Um, he is down, um, and he is down by, by quite a lot for this uh, time of the cycle. And so I would say that in many ways uh, numbers are similar, but it's because we're this far out, um, and it's definitely uh, a different type of uncertainty uh, that we faced than during what we faced during the Brexit. Well, and the, the other thing that's been pointed out, and you, I think it was you that, that, that mentioned this uh, in, an, in an article, that with Brexit, a lot of the traders, those people obviously that would be most affected uh, in terms of a Brexit uh, or a leave vote, they had priced that in uh, to the equation. So in other words, there is almost a, uh, you wouldn't call it a social desirability bias, but there is a bias there uh, that, that, that uh, you know, people are going to be adversely affected by this. And so that's going to be reflected in, I mean, do I have that right? Is, is, does that make sense? It is, it look, the, 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 it's a tricky point, and I, and I hope your, your listeners get this. Um, but we looked, I looked at this Brexit pricing prior, and I knew there was a problem. And, we, and I talked about this in the blog post, which is to say, uh, if Brexit passes, um, everyone knows that the pound is going to be worth about 10 percentage points less. And so if people are betting on Brexit to pass, um, they know that the return they're going to get on that is not a pound for a pound. It's going to be 90 pence on a pound because – Ultimately, they're going to get paid off. They're going to get paid off in a currency that's now worth less money. Uh, that is definitely uh, a very interesting question. It definitely uh, was a unique uh, outcome in which we knew that that was uh, such a clear effect. Uh, furthermore, we also know that pretty much everyone who trades regularly uh, had a large vested interest in Brexit not occurring uh, because very few people were invest it in a sort of way in which would pay off because essentially, again, if you were invested in Britain at all, uh, at least in the short run, um, they were going to lose money. And so uh, that is very different uh, than most situations, including Trump versus Clinton, where there are multiple uh, uh, people with tons of money who are on both sides. Exactly. And the the exactly. smart money can come in and sweep up. You have a market where essentially everyone uh, it's essentially rooting for one side. So even if they're betting against it, <clears throat> uh, there's no way that they're actually long Brexit 
in their overall portfolio. And okay. So got to jump in here, David. Got to take a, a uh, forgive me. Got to take a break. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Question everything. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, economist at Microsoft R&D, and the website is predictwise.com predictwise.com and uh, just to reiterate uh, the um, the odds in terms of the uh, the presidential election uh, for Trump to take the White House is sitting at about 25 percent so 75 percent uh, for Hillary and you're saying uh, David that that takes into account the 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 potential for an October surprise another WikiLeaks uh, scandal um, about Hillary or perhaps even I don't know, calls for another indictment on something unrelated to the, to the email scandal. But you've taken that into account already. You've baked that into the equation, correct? Uh, definitely. So following uh, market data, uh, I think that the markets have done a great job in the past, and I assume that they're doing so going forward in thinking about not just the polling data, not just kind of the fundamentals that we know about campaigns and the way they go, uh, but also – uh, the potential for things to happen, whether or not is the potential uh, for a strong debate to make a difference, uh, like we saw the in the first debate in 2012, where Romney came roaring back against Obama during the first debate, uh, or the potential for uh, other types of surprises, other types of uh, blunders or uh, miscues or or great strategies, and uh, they're taking into account both the possibility of an October surprise and, of course. Uh, another difference here that political scientists and economists alike are fascinating about is what happens with the giant differential in spending on both advertising and get out the vote campaigns down the stretch. Uh, right now, uh, Clinton is poised to have a fairly large advantage. Uh, she has a much larger uh, field game, as it were, going out to GOTV. And that's something that the, the markets will also be following as a way for her to cement the lead uh, should she have that going into October. Uh, what about, and I don't know how you measure this, and a lot of this is, uh, I think you refer to it as idiosyncratic data. Uh, because let's face it, human behavior can be, uh, well, I would say tricky to predict, but that's what you're in the business of, is predicting that, you know, uh, human behavior. Um, but when I look at, for example, the um, the rallies, the, uh, the Trump rallies, those people seem very energized and enthusiastic. And... You don't get that sense from from Hillary's supporters. A lot of it is very big. You know, it's kind of they're holding their nose. And we all know about the the whole Bernie Sanders uh, uh, situation. And a lot of his supporters are kind of holding their nose uh, when it comes to supporting Hillary. I mean, the idea then that Trump's supporters, because they're more enthusiastic, would more likely show up to vote than Hillary's supporters on voting day. What do you think of that? I think that it's important to think about the U.S. process uh, as a kind of pyramid of being involved. Uh, at the top, you have people who donate all that money. Uh, that's a huge investment. You have kind of just below that, you have tons of people who volunteer for campaigns or show up at rallies or physically take time out to make things happen. 
but what you have to remember is, is that all of those people are very, very small percentage of the electorate. Uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, as you mentioned, had a great enthusiasm. He had a lot of people come out to these rallies. I think I heard a number upwards of a million people overall came out to his rallies. Uh, but that is still uh, well less than one percent of the people that we expect to vote in the 2016 general election. And so uh, the answer is that it, it could translate into money. It could translate into volunteer support. Uh, and it certainly can mean that there's a core group of people that are enthusiastic. Uh, but the vast majority of voters will never engage in the process beyond voting. And what we do see is, is that uh, all of these metrics as far as engagement, um, as far as uh, how much people say they're enthusiastic, ultimately does not change the electric very much, which is a very stable thing from election to election. And so it's possible that it could translate to something for him. But what I would say is this, is that uh, there has been uh, 54% of the electorate has been women and 46% has been male uh, for over six straight elections, regardless of who's been running and what's been going on. Uh, the marginal demographics of the voters have been very stable um, and things can shift and it, it will shift. Uh, but generally it shifts in very predictable ways and quite small from election to election. All right. And we're heading into a break, and we'll, I'll, I'll ask you this question. I may have to jump in, and we can continue after the break. But in 2012, I had read where uh, um, Romney, ha uh, the difference in that election was about 700,000 votes spread over five states. So if, if Trump can bring new people into the tent independents, uh, undecideds, or people who had never even voted before, unregistered, uh, if he can – and I think this speaks to the ground game obviously – but if he can get 700,000 um, people to register across you know, five states, that could be the difference perhaps. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back and I'll ask you about that. Then we'll move on to other, uh, other matters. PredictWise isn't just about uh, the president of the United States. Uh, they also talk about entertainment. And I see on the website, predictwise.com, uh, there's a page there dedicated to Game of Thrones. What's that all about? We'll come back and discuss. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. After a decade, it's time for a change. And the next phase of conspiracy culture's evolution is bringing us back to Parkdale. Visit us in our new location inside the Toronto Designers Market, 1605 Queen Street West, for exciting and informative events that will help free thinkers like you find the information that you seek. We are Conspiracy Culture at ConspiracyCulture.com. Books, DVDs, and events that will help you on your quest for truth and freedom. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Dr. David Rothschild is with us. PredictWise.com. Uh, PredictWise.com. And, uh, you know, David, I'm having a senior's moment. I, what, I was just before the break, I asked you something, and now it is gone. Where, where, <laughs> I was going to ask you about you're, the you're game of... You're asking about the 2012 election. Yes, thank and, you. Uh, thank you brought you. up a good point. And, and let, me, let me kind of say two things on it. Number one is that 
Donald Trump is at this point underperforming uh, Romney uh, in most places. So the question was, you know, Romney came close, reasonably close. Uh, he had to flip uh, several hundred thousand votes very strategically, and he would have uh, carried the election. That is true. Uh, but let's say, first of all, he is underperforming. Um, but I think the second point, which you actually answered yourself as you were going to break, which is to say it takes a lot of data uh, and a really strong uh, ground game as well as targeted advertising uh, to say I can just nail 750,000 strategically placed voters and flip those people in a certain way, um, and that will do the difference uh, in the election. And Donald Trump is – uh, at this point, uh, very far behind uh, in their ground game, just by uh, things like the number of offices that have been open. We know that uh, there was an article just a few days ago where I think it was in the Washington Post, and they showed that there's a one office or two offices in a lot of the major swing states where Hillary Clinton was in the 30s and 40s, the number of offices. Um, and for those people who haven't been involved in the U.S. politics, um, <laughs> there is a concerted effort to make voting relatively hard in the U.S. In a lot of places, you still need to vote on Election Day, um, and that Election Day is a work day. It's a Tuesday. Um, and so for a lot of people, it is a commitment to take a few uh, minutes to, if you're in a more urban area, maybe a few hours out of your day in order to vote. And so the ground game is what really motivates people to overcome that cost. Uh, to help them actually get to the polls and all sorts of different ways to remind them. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's a question of strategically getting people out there, uh, it looks like the Clinton campaign is doing a, a pretty uh, widespread job right now. And uh, there's not much evidence, at least externally, that the Trump campaign is doing uh, as good a job. Uh Potential October surprise. And uh, again, we're into speculation here. But what about a, a health crisis. What if, for example, uh, people were to see Hillary stumble again on a plane? Or what if, what if there's some sort of a, uh, an issue related to her concussion in, in 2012? Well, look, I mean, you should be looking at this on both sides. Uh, both candidates are relatively old. Uh, Donald Trump himself would be uh, the oldest person to ever uh, assume the presidency uh, if he were to win this election. And uh, so Hillary Clinton has released uh, um, pretty much the standard package of medical records. Um, she is, uh, I, I'm forgetting the exact number, I believe she's 68 years old. Yes, she um, is, yeah. Donald Trump is uh, 70 years old. Um, Donald Trump's letter from his doctor, we'll say, was a little bizarre. Um, and uh, hasn't had uh, hasn't released the standard battery of tests and, and reports. And so, I would say that uh, it's interesting that the Trump campaign is pushing the health issue um, when um, there's no reason to believe that he is not a very virile and healthy uh, 70-year-old man. But that is also uh, a somewhat of a concern. Look, I'll take a step back and say, uh, you know, I'm 36 years old and I can't pull the kind of hours I used to have. This is a this is a a very demanding job, and it is amazing to step back and say, look, that we have two uh, people of that age pushing for the job. More important, I think, is something to remember. Uh, 
very, very few voters actually swing in U.S. elections, uh, especially if you get to October. Uh, it is really hard to move people. And most people who move, when you look at the raw data, they move from the fence saying that they're not sure if they're going to vote for anyone or they're going to vote for other or something like that to a major party candidate. So um, if Clinton is over 50 percent in the polls and she's flirting with that, she's around 47 or percent or so, if she could push over 50 percent, it is really hard to move downwards. Most of the things that uh, change, uh, they do because both people are moving up, but they're moving up at a different rate as people start joining the ranks of the two major party candidates. So uh, it really should be uh, an early September surprise if Donald Trump really wants to make it work uh, late uh, or mid-October, just maybe too late. Right. Okay. And just uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but even Bill Clinton, uh, you know, said that or predicted that Hillary's health would be an issue. Uh, However, um, sometimes I get the sense he's almost trying to derail her her campaign. However, uh, let's move on to other matters. And and, um, the mighty Aphrodite and I, my wife, we uh, we started watching. We're a couple seasons behind, but we started watching Game of Thrones. And Predict Wise isn't just about presidential elections. You also you've you've made uh, you've had some incredible accuracies when accuracy when it comes to predicting uh, the Oscars. Uh, But what's going on with Game of Thrones? What what, what's the prediction there? What's all that? What's that all about? So in Game of Thrones, um, you know, this is, is not something in which normally I would, I'd like to have a, a nice model to back up what we're doing. There's not a, a great history of outcomes I could look at uh, with the question at hand, which is who is ultimately going to be ruling Westeros at the end of the series? Um, so we, we skip right past that and I go right to what are what are people actually betting on the open market? So uh, it's a little more obscure um, but I've found several locations around the world where you can actually place wagers on the ruler of Westeros at the end of the series. And I try to translate to the best of my ability uh, those uh, wagers uh, where I can find them, basically looking for uh, the uh, cheapest marginal price that you could buy for uh, different possible outcomes. And uh, not surprising – well, actually, I, I don't know if you want to know if you're a few seasons behind – yeah, I, um, no, but, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I do not. But um, but look, uh, there's uh, there's definitely been a lot of movement over the last few seasons. It's been interesting to see, um, and it's one of those really weird predictions because there's somebody who knows the answer and just hasn't told us, or maybe no one, maybe hasn't decided yet. We don't know that. But um, you know, where a lot of things or most things that we predict um, are in the realm of the. A truly unknown. There's still there's still die to be cast to see where it goes. Uh, here is a case in which uh, the answer is no, but similar to the Oscars and other entertainment outcomes that we try to follow, um, where where maybe the answer is already known but hasn't been revealed, and it's definitely a, a fun thing to follow, and it's something which I intend to add a lot more over uh, in the coming months as I as I add in more uh, entertainment, sports, and politics onto the site. Uh, but when you're talking about a TV show, which is the, the ultimate, I mean, the outcome is determined by the writers and the producers and so forth. Yeah. So uh, what you're gauging is, you know, in the prediction market, are those people that watch the show and are, and are talking about it online and, and so forth or betting on it. But how does that in any way foretell what's in the writers or the producer's mind? Look, it, it's really the... Uh the it's the crowd's wisdom on the matter and so 
you know, there's a lot of people who watch these shows a lot closer than I. Um, they're looking for clues constantly and what is in uh, the mind of the writer and the mind of the uh, producers on HBO. And uh, basically, this is the aggregation of their collective wisdom, uh, which in some ways uh, falls short of the truth, of course. Uh, and an omnipresent God will know the true answer to this because they know that there's a few people out there who have already made up their mind. There's no ambiguity in that. But it definitely is interesting uh, in this matter, but in other matters, to know what does the crowd think, even if it's not uh, the uh, ground truth, uh, even if it's not necessarily reading it's the minds of those people who know the answers. Uh, it's the best estimate of the collective wisdom we see out there. You could go and scour blogs uh, uh, day in and day out, and this is basically doing that for you. Uh, if the question at hand is who's going to rule Westeros at the end of the day, uh, this, I would say, is the best approximation of scouring all of those fan wisdom out there and putting it all together and putting a point estimate on it. Ah, and, and herein lies then the, the, you know, the, the enormous uh, not potential, but the enormous upside for PredictWise for things like marketing, where it is all about, you know, preference, uh, consumer preference and so forth. That's definitely uh, a good point and definitely uh, it's something I uh, definitely agree with. And to say that, uh, you know, a lot of this work is definitely teaches me how the crowd works. And as we talked about in the beginning, uh, how the crowd works in formulating their numbers, then what I could do with those numbers to predict outcomes. But you're exactly right. Uh, the wheelhouse is definitely, in a sense, politics, where ultimately there is a product out there and people are making decisions. It does great for box office predictions. Uh, and, of course, any other marketing question, where ultimately the crowd who is providing me the data is also uh, the ultimate arbitrator of the truth. Uh, one final question. A huge baseball fan. We're sitting here in Toronto, of course, uh, and um, hoping and praying uh, for a positive outcome for our Blue Jays uh, this year. Uh, what does PredictWise have to say about uh, the Blue Jays' chances of winning the World Series? Well, the Blue Jays are looking pretty decent uh, for the team that they have in the sense that uh, they are at 7% right now. Uh, to win the World Series. Uh, look, the Cubs and the Nationals are historically awesome teams this year. Yes, they are. Um, and uh, I don't think most people are going to deny that. And the Cubs' number right now is at 25%, which is crazy considering that they haven't won a round to the playoffs yet. They have uh, three rounds to go. They're obviously going to make the playoffs at this point. Uh, the same with the Nationals, who both have commanding leads in the National League Central and National League East, respectively. Um, but that being said, uh, someone is going to make it out of the AL, um, and whoever makes it out of the AL uh, is going to have a shot. And uh, the most likely team to make it out of the AL is the Rangers coming out of the West. Yes, they're tough. Um, the Blue Jays are, are, are the next best team in that uh, kind of uh, right up there with the, the Red Sox and Indians. And, and what I can say to give hope to everyone is to say, look, these numbers are tricky to read. Um, because essentially they're conditional on looking at how the playoffs play out. And so any given team uh, in uh, the West of the NBA last year uh, had a somewhat lower probability of winning than the, the Cavaliers, who ultimately won, because we knew the Cavaliers were going to make it to the finals because they simply had no other teams in the East to play against. Uh, this year you have, uh, in baseball, an interesting scenario where the two far and away best teams, they need to – beat each other and so uh it's kind of a tricky thing to think through but 
ultimately only one of those two teams can make it out of the NL. And so whoever makes it out of the AL just has to beat one of them. And so that's a, that's a little, little nice advantage they get there in the way the leaks are broken up. And so uh, anything is possible, though it's still quite a long shot for any given team outside of Chicago and uh, Washington. Even if, uh, we're just almost done here, but even if a John Lester and a Chris Bryant and a, and a Jake Arrieta go down, uh, I mean, you've already, again, you've just kind of a yes or no, you've baked that into the equation as well? It baked that into the equation, but, you know, in baseball more than other sports, there's liable to be uh, giant jumps uh, when injuries happen um, in this, you know, if a QB goes down in football or a star player goes down in basketball, uh, baseball has their pitchers that can make a huge difference. And uh, injuries uh, happen or don't happen will make uh, big jumps, especially uh, in those uh, standings for the AL East, where you have uh, still uh, a reasonably tight uh, uh, area with, uh, I guess, a one-game lead for Toronto right now. Yeah, David, um, I got to jump in and, and cut it. Wild card. Uh, is uh, is not like it used to be. You need to win that league, uh, win the division, in order to, to skip ahead and not play this one-game playoff. David, I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. David Rothschild, PredictWise.com. All right, back with more. Always say hello on Twitter at uh, Richard Serrett. Check out the website, strangeplanet.ca, and follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your loft, your parents' basement, taxi, long-haul truck, RV camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A very special hello to uh, all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, Canada, AM 740, 96.7 FM. 50,000 watts of peace and love. Hello to all of you uh, streaming us live on YouTube through our Hangout On Air. And uh, those listening in on one of our affiliate stations in Canada and the United States. Those of you catching us on the podcast, of course. And uh, the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, which are both free downloads. However and wherever you're listening I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. Thanks for your fine company. L.A. Marzulli is standing by, world-renowned researcher of ancient prophetic texts. And uh, L.A., of course, has uh, uncovered the trail of the Nephilim as they have left their uh, footprints throughout history, and perhaps uh, they never left. We'll discuss uh, that, plus uh, scientific evidence uh, such as, this is fascinating, I don't know if you've been following this story, uh, this very strange creature that resembles, well, uh, I guess a creature that most closely resembles 
a, what, what we knew from legend as a fairy, uh, or even perhaps the locusts described in uh, St. John's um, Revelation. We'll get into all of that as well. He we went down to Mexico, had uh, x-rays taken, DNA samples of this very strange winged uh, creature. Don't know if you've seen it online, but we'll, we'll show uh, some images of it uh, on the, uh, the YouTube, YouTube stream. Uh, and also, of course, LA's um, excellent series, Watchers, uh, Watchers 10 now, is, uh, is available. And his book, Nephilim Hybrids, packed with information uh, concerning what Lynn believes may be a massive uh, cover-up. That's L.A. Marzulli in Mere Moments. Where did the towers go? Evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11. Uh, don't miss my exclusive live event, Sunday, September the 11th, featuring Dr. Judy Wood. That's from 1 to 4 p.m. at the JJR McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. Tickets available online at strangeplanet.ca. Just click on the live events page and uh, order and print your tickets right there. $20 in advance, so be quick because uh, time's running out. At the door, you pay $30. So get your tickets now, strangeplanet.ca, live events page. Where Did the Towers Go? Featuring Dr. Judy Wood, Sunday, September the 11th. Don't miss out. Hope to see you there. Uh, Albert Vinzel, a remote viewer, story producer, par excellence, is uh, here running our Hangout on Air. Ian Robertson uh, on the other side of the glass, twisting the, do- the knobs and the dials. Uh, if you want to stream this radio program on YouTube, uh, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Go to the top or near the top of the feed and find the tweet containing the HOA link. Just click on that and you're in. Now, I'm going to crib here from uh, WND, our good friends at WorldNet Daily. It's the age of revelations, bizarre creatures, the false perception of reality exposed. And in Watchers 10, supernatural hunter L.A. Marzulli traverses the world for the truth in the latest installment of his mind-bending series, focusing on the DNA testing of some of the most incredible, unidentified specimens ever found. Marzulli travels to Mexico City to investigate the remains of a fairy quote-unquote, dubbed the metepic creature, a being some noted eerily resembles the locusts mentioned by John in the book of Revelation. Marzulli's Watchers 10 includes detailed scientific research, including DNA testing and x-rays, to determine whether or not this small winged creature is a hoax, an elaborate scam by an individual piecing together body parts, or if it can be authenticated as a real carbon-based life form. L.A. Marzulli is an author, lecturer, filmmaker. He's penned 10 books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. He received an honorary doctorate for the series from his mentor, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, who was the provost at Pacific International University. His series, On the Trail of the Nephilim, is a full-color, oversized book which uncovers startling evidence that there has been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. L.A. Marzulli, my friend, welcome back to the program. How are you? Hey, Richard, I'm great. How are you, sir? Actually, I'm on mute. Hey, Richard, I'm great. How are you, sir? Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> good, yeah. good to have you with us again. Um, yeah, good for- to be here. First of all, listen, this is kind of late-breaking news, uh, but on uh, on uh, going back to WND, they're reporting, I don't know if you saw this, or maybe you're the the, uh, the source, these giant uh, footprints found in China. This just happened like a week ago. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I, I just, um, someone sent me the link, and I just looked at it. Very, very interesting. It, it appears like the real deal, and of course, they're, you know, WND, thank you, uh, Joseph Farah, for, you know, sort of tipping... 
uh, the hat towards our work, um, you know, that, that's quite an honor that I can do that. But, yeah, I mean, look, this stuff is starting to come out, and, it, and what's really interesting to us, to all of us, guys like Steve Quayle, Tom Horn, uh, Timothy Alvarino, I mean, we're all kind of plowing in the same field. We're trying to expose it so people can really see what's going on. And, um, you know, information like this is just absolutely fascinating. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about this uh, this winged creature uh, down in uh, Mexico. You went down there. First of all, how did you find out about it? Well, what happened was, and this is this is just an amazing story. We went down about three years ago to interview Hami Masson. Hami Masson has one of the longest uh, television programs in Mexico. It's watched by upwards of four to five million people on a weekly basis. And, and, the, and the program basically deals with the whole UFO phenomenon, which is, you know, just wonderful, actually. And thank God somebody's doing it out there. You don't get anything like that in this, in, you know, here. You get ancient aliens is about the closest thing we get. Now, Jaime will have, like, real photographs coming from all over the planet, and he shows them, and he talks about them. It's a great show. So we were down there to interview Jaime, uh, which later became Washer 7, which, by the way, we won, we won uh, Best Film at the... Um, at the UFO Congress that year, which was just a real honor for us. And George Norrie actually presented the award, which is really cool. Well, what happened here? Well, I still hear you. Um, yeah, can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Okay, there's, there's a mute thing on. I just want to make sure you can hear me. So anyway, um, we get out to interview Jaime, and we're down. Jaime, like, the offices are in a four-story, nondescript building in Mexico City. So we're there with Jaime and... Uh, uh, he appears on the second floor, and he kind of waves to us. He goes, my Willie Shaw, come up. And so there's a spiral staircase that goes up all four stories, and we bounded up the staircase, and finally ushers us into his office. And he immediately informs us that he's right in the middle of a TV show. He'll be down in about an hour. In the meantime, guys, take a look at this. And he reaches behind him to a cupboard up here, takes this thing out of the cupboard, brings it down, and sets it on the desk. And here it is. It's this jar. And in the jar is like a nine-inch figure. It's got wings. It's got pointed ears. It's got a tail. It's got teeth. It's got arms and legs. And he steps it on his desk, and he walks out of the room. He bounds out of the room, jumps up the staircase, and kind of waves. We'll see you in an hour. Goodbye. <laughs> La-dee-da. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Richard, Sean, and I are looking at this, and we can't believe what we're looking at. And I, I look, remember the first thing I thought it was, Oh, my gosh, this looks like something I read out of the book of Revelation. That was the first thought that came into my head. And I, I went to Rick and I said, do you think it's real? He, you know, who knows, right? That's that kind of thing. Well, this led us down the rabbit trail. Uh, Ricardo Rangel was a ge- uh, geneticist who also came to uh, that particular meeting. And we interviewed him. We interviewed Jaime about it. We had to sit on these interviews basically for three years. We never published them. We never did anything with them. Now, Jaime gave us permission, and that's what that's what's in Watchers 10. The thing has gone basically viral. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's just a, you're right. It's a huge, yeah, huge I mean, it's story. It's gone viral. It's all over the place. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's just really, really interesting. But, look, I leaned, in, and I know people aren't, aren't going to believe this, but um, we really were in a quandary with this thing. Because the x-rays which we had, we, we, we saw the x-rays in, in Mexico City, but we didn't actually get them until about, oh, three, four months ago. In other words, about 
a month before we ready to, ready to uh, go into post-production, stop shooting all all interviews for Watchers 10, so Richard can finish the thing on a time, Richard Shaw, the co-producer of Watchers, um, Jaime sent the x-ray. So we saw the x-rays down there in Mexico three years ago. They were taken before we got there, and I was confused about something because it's three years ago, and... Uh, I thought that they took the x-rays that day. No, they brought the x-rays in for us to look at that day, but the x-rays were taken before that. So I, I, I said it the other way. I thought that it was very providential that they took x-rays the day we were there. I was wrong. And because of the language barrier, uh, you know, it's like, okay, so we're not going to get some of the particulars. And immediately, oh, my God, it's a hoax. You know, people will jump on that. Or Joyce is looking right. and then he right. horse, oh, oh, oh. You know, it's like, it's just unbelievable. So, you know, it's like, God, I'm not trying to hide anything here. Right. I right. leaned towards hope when I, when I saw it. Um, when I saw the x-rays, it became even more, the needle went from like, okay, hopes to like, oh my gosh, major hopes. And the reason for this is, take a look at this. You see the little white dots, and I'll try not to move it. Yes. You see the white dots on it? I do. Yes. Right What's... there? Yes. We didn't know what those were. And I'm looking at those and going, well, maybe the white dots, that was the x-ray I showed you. Maybe those white dots are the way they put this creature together. It's like a composite from a Right, creature. exactly. And yes. That's what we thought it was, okay? And, and they're like, we're going like, well, you know, if we go with this thing and it's a hoax, and we say it's a hoax, then, okay, we've, we've just proven it. So... There's, there's no egg on our faces. We're doing the right thing. We're telling people what we think it is. If it's not a hoax, and we say it's not a hoax, then we're really going out on a limb here. Exactly. Yeah, no, you've got a lot so, of writing on this. I mean, you've got, you know, we do. your well, reputation. We right, exactly. We, we still have a lot writing on it. Mean, you, you wouldn't have believed the vituperative remarks uh, when this thing finally broke. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like no one was there. No one's got the x-rays. No one's done any research, but they sit on YouTube and act like they know everything. Come exactly. On, exactly. Me a break. Right. So here's the deal. Mm. I want. So here's the <laughs> deal. I made a deal. I, I, I called this one particular veterinarian who lives within a 100-mile radius of where I live, okay? The guy wishes to remain anonymous. He's, he's since... That interview, he's backed off the whole thing completely. I'm uh, sorry, to do with Lynn, I'm going to jump in here. Excuse me, I'm going to yeah, jump in. I, I, yeah, I, I, I can't blame him. Okay, we're going to take a, a, a timeout. We'll come back, and we'll pick up at that point. L.A. Marzuli, Watchers 10, of course, now available. And uh, don't forget, uh, it's quite an amazing uh, book. On the Trail of the Nephilim, full-color, oversized book. We'll tell you how to get that. And uh, we'll talk about this amazing winged creature down in Mexico and uh, the X-ray evidence. Does it point to a hoax or is this the real deal? Back with more. Don't go away. My name is Richard Serrett. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Author, researcher, lecturer, L.A. Marzulli uh, is with us. The website, lamarzulli.net, L.A. M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I dot net, L-A-Marzulli dot net. Uh, and you can order, uh, wa- you can wa- order Watchers 10 uh, right there off the, uh, the website. And, of course, also on the website, you can uh, follow his blog, uh, Acceleration Radio, Acceleration TV, uh, and so much more. L.A. Marzulli now talking about uh, this strange winged creature resembles a fairy. We've got uh, some images that up, uh, up on, the, uh, on the, uh, the live stream there on YouTube. Uh, and recently, L.A. showed us uh, an X-ray. So you you took that X-ray to was it a neighbor? No, no, it wasn't a neighbor at all. It was a veterinarian that was within a hundred miles of where I live. Okay. So I had to drive a considerable distance to get to this guy, um, and you know this came through a friend, through a friend, through a friend type of thing. So I never met this guy before, and I walked in and I had the X-ray which I just showed you. I'll show it again because it's, you know, just really worth looking at. Yes, absolutely. Let's get those up again. Okay. And I walk in and I say, look, you know, you don't know me from Adam and uh, I don't know if this thing is real or not, but could this, you know, we look at the x-rays and I go, no, I'm talking to a veterinarian. The reason I wanted to go to a vet rather than a medical doctor is this. A veterinarian is trained, think about it. He's trained in looking at a variety of different animals. Everything from snakes to mice to hamsters, dogs, cats, I mean, horses. It's just a whole spectrum of, of, of anatomy. Right. You know, uh, all creatures, great and small. Yes. That's the deal. Where a medical doctor, okay, they may know something about it, but they're trained particularly to look at one, one anatomy, one skeletal structure, and that is a human being. So, obviously, the vet is the way to go. Absolutely. With this thing, because this is an unknown... Um, you know, mammal at this point. We don't know what the heck. For all we know, Richard, the thing could be a hoax, and we don't want to get the egg on our face. And and quite frankly, you know, we still don't really know. Now, and the reason for that is this, that even though we we went with it and we believe that it's not a hoax, we we are in the process of doing extensive testing on this thing, probably in the next month or two. Okay. Uh, We've got access to it. We're, We're going for it, okay? We're getting, we're getting our ducks lined up now. So I go to this vet. All I've got is the x-rays with me. And I go in the little waiting room, and, and I, 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 you know, I arrange all the x-rays. I've got my iPhone, and he'll let, me, he'll let me record with the iPhone but not on camera so I can get the audio, which is what I do. Right. That audio is, is, is printed uh, verbatim in the new book, Knuckling Hybrid, and it's also obviously in, 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 the, in Watcher's Tent. So my first question is, and I'm holding this thing up, and I'll show you a frontal view this yeah. time. Let me just have Albert switch over so we can see that. Are we good, Albert? Can we see? Okay, we can see the x-rays. Good. That's the frontal view. That's the frontal view. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm going, okay, are we looking at, my first question, is this a composite? You know, like, well, we took the... You know, the skeleton of an hamster, and then we put some bat wings on it, and the skull of, you know, uh, a, a, a fruit bat or whatever, and it went from there. And the guy's looking at this thing, and he's going, look, I can see an entire skeletal system here. You know, I, I can see the rib cage. 
I can see the sternum, okay? I see the pelvic girdle. I see the way the, 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 um, the thigh bone, okay, is, is attached into the pelvic girdle. And, and, and it's going, if it's a hoax, if it's a forgery, it's, it's a masterful one. Right. And then he goes, why would someone spend the time to do this? And I go, exactly. He was found on the side of the road by a 13-year-old boy who gave it to Jaime Masson, who paid X amount of dollars to get it from the kid. And then it's out there. No one's done, you know, Jaime hasn't posted anything with it. We're the ones that sort of broke the story, at least here in the state. He's allowed us to do that. Thank you, Jaime. But it's Jaime's fine. And, you know, I mean, Jaime sat on the thing. So the vet's looking at this thing going, you know, it doesn't look like a composite to me. It looks like the real deal. So my next question to him was this. I'm going to use the other one now. I said, look, here is, and you, you can see this, right here. There are the wings. Got it, yep. Right there are the wings. Amazing. And you see the way that where the radiograph, the x-ray, shows three different hot spots. It's called the girdle, right there. Right. The area around the shoulder blades here, okay. where the wings attach, and the skull. It's exactly what you would expect to see. Pelvic girdle is massive bone. The wings have a muscular system, must have some kind of a muscular system that enables this thing to fly, which means, like we have shoulder blades, mm-hmm. this thing's got shoulder blades that are dense, and it's got a, a, a skeletal system and a muscular system to support flight. Then, of course, the skull is dense because skulls are dense, all right? We also think the thing flies. You see the way this thing is like here? It doesn't fly this way. It flies this way. That's based on some eyewitness accounts that we have. Right. So right. he's looking at this thing, and again, we're looking at the structure of the wings, and, and he's going, you know, it, it really looks real. So, okay, I mean, all that's well and good. I get it. Now my, my hoax meter has gone from this has got to be a hoax to like, well, not so sure. Still leaning towards hoax because of the enigmatic white dots, which exactly. we see all yeah. through the creature's body. Right. See that? It's everywhere. All right. Let me show you the frontal one, because the front, the front X-ray has got um, shows you a little clearer in some ways. Sorry. Right. <laughs> I dropped it. Uh, you can see here, you know, dot, and then the three dots in here. Uh, what looks like maybe one or two dots that have smeared together, another dot there. So I'm looking at these white hot dots and I'm going, well, what, what, you know, what, what makes these? And he goes, the vet goes, oh, I've seen those before. And I go, well, you know, what do you mean? He goes, those are BBs. And I'm still not putting it together this way. I go, BBs? Yeah, how can somebody, what, they reload it 20 times? And he goes, no, it's like buckshot. Now, He's, obviously, this guy doesn't shoot, I guess. So it's not buckshot, it's birdshot. Right, birdshot, yes. It's have a... come up and looked at the x-rays, and we know that this thing's about nine inches tall. And based on the x-rays, we've stated that, it, this hunter stated it's number seven, birdshot. Ah. Number seven, birdshot. That's what these white dots are. Well, when he said that, BBs, buckshot, somebody shot this thing. Right. And we know from about 50 to 75 feet away, based on the pattern. And I just went, oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, my host meter went from here to, no, this thing is the real deal. 
So when I walked in there, my host meter was way over here. It's got to be a hoax. These white dots have something to do with it. And then it started swinging back. And by the time the interview was over, you know, this, the, the, the veterinarian really cleared up a lot of what I was looking at. And that, that changed everything for me. Um, I realized that, that this thing was blasted out of the air. It was shot. Uh, and that these white pellets, these white round cylindrical dots that we see all throughout the creature, and if they're very asymmetrical, I'll show it to you again. I mean, you can see that, that it, it, these dots are very asymmetrical. They're all over the body. And we also think now, the veterinarian comes on the record and states this, that you can see the fractured leg here. The fractured leg, we think that's maybe one or two pellets which broke the leg, right. fractured the leg. Right. So, um, look. We've got things lined up. We're trying to find a forensic uh, anthropologist to look at this thing because that's what we need. We need a forensic anthropologist to look at the x-rays. We actually have the creature, not in our possession, but it, it's in California. And uh, we're excited about that because we can do further testing on it. We're going to take multiple x-rays, try to get as many different people with multi-disciplines uh, as we can, like forensic anthropologists, um, I've already had a taxidermist weigh in based on the x-rays. It was really interesting. The taxidermist said, look, he's articulated and dis- or I should say he's disarticulated and then rearticulated thousands of skeletons. What a taxidermist does when he gets a something to mount, let's just say it's um, uh, a raccoon, for lack of a better, you know, we'll just pick a raccoon. Right. right? So somebody comes in with a dead raccoon with a shot. I want my raccoon done. So the taxidermist, and by the way, I, I was an amateur taxidermist at 12 years old. I was a boy scout, and you could sign away for Northwestern School of Taxidermy. And, of course, I sent my $14, which was a lot back in 1962. And I got these books, and, I, you know, the whole neighborhood, all the kids, all the guys, sure. totally into this stuff in Pennsylvania. Did you boy put a scout, squirrel in a top hat and a tuxedo? And hunting, <laughs> and deal, right? So that is the taxidermist story. He's telling us that he's, you know— disarticulated, he's got the raccoon, he's got to skin it, he's right. got to take the skeleton out of this, right? And then he's got to, you know, take all that meat and everything else off of it and boil, the, boil the, the skeleton because he's going to use that skeleton to remount into the raccoon. Now, right. not all taxidermists work this way, but this guy does. And so he's got to rearticulate it. He looked at the x-rays and he said, LA, the thing is real. And in his opinion, the thing is real. And that's, look, it, 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 it gets weary, you can tell. I need a vacation, but you, you can tell that it gets weary. <laughs> oh, bad. Because, you know, we're, we're, we're like, we're going against the mainstream. We're going against what people really don't want to believe. And, and there's so many hoaxes out there on the Internet. I get it. And for all we know, still, we may be still looking at some sort of elaborate hoax that has fooled me, the taxidermist, the veterinarian, my business partner, Richard Shaw, Jaime Masson. We still aren't 100% sure. But i got to tell you, where I'm at with this thing, I'm like at least 90% sure that it is real and it's not a hoax. That, that's, where I'm, that's where I lay, based on the veterinarian's take on this thing. And now I'm just standing with the radiograph with the x-rays are showing. And that's why, look, we're, we're getting things lined up. We're going to try to... We're going to try to extract one of those pellets, bring it down to the seal lab, um, open it up, put it under a scanning electron microscope with an EDX, 
which tells us what the material is made out of. We'll be able to ascertain is that bird shot. If it's bird shot, you know, then then like we're home, sort of home free. I mean, you, you're trying to tell me a forger builds this thing and then blasts it with a shotgun so it even looks more real? I mean, is that what we're looking at? I don't think so. so okay. You know, this is our research. What? Uh, first of all, what was the veterinarian's reaction when he saw this thing? He was uneasy, <laughs> and that's why he's backed out of it. Right. Um, and I, look, I, I get it. I mean, I understand, I understand why these guys are like that. Uh, it's... Um, He's thinking reputation. He's sure. going to be associated with this. This is really far off stuff. This is beyond the fringe, and it is beyond the fringe. And so he doesn't, you know, I, I get it. And the moment he told me, I just started laughing. I said, look, you're going to join the ranks of, of others who uh, are very nervous about saying anything or coming on the record. And, and you can see the, the book here. This is the book cover uh, for Nephilim Hybrids. That's actually a shot of what it looks like in the jar. You can see the creature with the wings. And, you know, when, when I first saw the creature, Nephilim hybrid, yes, when I first saw that creature, and coincidentally, my boys uh, were watching the Harry Potter series from beginning to end for the 188th time, and uh, I saw the, uh, you know, there's that, uh, the, uh, the movie with the those Cornish pixies. I don't know if people are familiar with the Harry Potter movies, but there's this creature in there at Hogwarts called Cornish pixies. That looks for all the world like a Cornish pixie. Yeah, you're not the first person to tell me that. So is it life imitating art? Um, you know, we don't know. Uh, you know, art imitating life? I mean, we, we, so all I know is that right now I lean towards the thing is real. And that raises more problems than, than we'd like to actually go down and think about. But I want to show you something else here. And I'm going to bring this in real close so you can see it. There's the tail, right right there. Yeah, what's that on the end? Right there's the tail. See yeah, it? Yeah, right. Right there. So yes. that tail, I'm going to point to it again. There's the tail. Right. That tail... Is as a, it's like the tail of a scorpion. It has a barb on it. And, you know, when we saw this, we were immediately taken aback by it because that's just not supposed to be there. And yet it's there. And what we read in, in the book of Revelation is that these things that come out of the pit that are released, and there's, you know, millions of them, perhaps billions of them, we don't know. There's an army of these locust-like things with, with faces like, like a human being, hair like a woman. Um, a, a armor, like iron, like a breastplate. It's got wings that sound like horses with many chariots. And you know what? When, when you're around just two or three hummingbirds that are going after the hummingbird theater, theater, it's very, very loud. Yes. And th this thing was nine inches tall. That's, that's exactly nine inches. From here to here is exactly nine inches, okay? So, you know, when you, when you look at that and, and you uh, we extrapolate about that, you, uh, these things... These wings are big, um, and this thing probably quite the racket in, in, in sure. life when it was sure. around. So, so the locusts uh, from from Revelations. This is a this is a pretty close description of, of what you're looking at there in that jar. Amazing. It, it's very very close. That was the first thing that popped into my head when I saw it. Oh my gosh, this thing looks like it's something out of the book of Revelation. I mean, that's what it looks like. And the stinger that it had, and I showed you that on the x-ray, 
The stinger is not bone. The stinger is cartilage. So again, the host, the hoaxer is going to have to find a stinger, and it doesn't, you know, it kind of resembles a scorpion tail, but it's not a scorpion tail, Richard. It's something else that I've never seen before. So what is that? And that's why, you know, we get it, we get it to a vet who will look at this thing and train in anatomy, take more X-rays, really look at the way the thing is attached, go in with a with a, with a scalpel and get one of the pellets out, and maybe extract fluid if there's any fluid left from the tail area. We don't know. Uh, the brain is the thing, as far as we know, you know, the brain is always encased uh, in, a, in an airtight seal, so to speak. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out, right? Because of the skull, the way things are. Right. So is there still tissue there that we might be able to sample that's not contaminated? Have a solution for maldehyde or alcohol oh, things in? Boy, Lynn, this this could be the story of all time. This could be the most important story in human history. Uh, we'll come back. Yeah, when... I, I wouldn't go that far, but it's a very. It's, I mean, I could think of a lot, lot of stories which which would trump this. No pun intended. All respect to your last guest. Oh, uh, all right, L.A. Something I It's fascinating. Stay with but us. But it certainly L- is a story that 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 uh, causes people to think. And it does point back to the veracity of the biblical prophetic narrative. I mean, if exactly, this, exactly. Real. I got to jump in. I got to take a time out. We'll come back with L.A. Marzuli, lamarzuli.net. Stay with us. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 866 740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. L.A. Marzuli is with us, author, researcher, lecturer, lamarzuli.net, and you can, uh, you can purchase Watchers 10 uh, right there online. The, uh, and there's, a, there's a, the whole DVD uh, set, Watchers 1 through 10, available as well. Uh, now, I want to talk for a moment um, uh, about the Paracas skulls and if you have any, uh, any updates on these amazing elongated skulls. I mean, you went down to South America. You had access to them. Um, I mean, this is amazing how you, first of all, you get access, uh, L.A. Uh, I mean, you must go, you must spend a lot of time building trust and relationships with these people. They, they just, they're willing to hand over things to you. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's like a, this amazing gift you have. Well, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're very blessed that way. It's, it's, you know, provenance, whatever you want to call it. Power to be uh, wants this information released, and I think that's why it's, it's some of it just comes to us. A lot of it comes to Richard Shaw. Some of it comes to me. I mean, there's no scorecard here, but stuff comes to both of us. And uh, it's really interesting the way it, the way it filters down. Uh, the, the samples that we were able to take were all from the senior wand of our uh, Paracas History Museum. We were allowed to take hair out of there, and that's what we did uh, with no scalp attached. It's just hair, human hair, and no one cares about that. We certainly weren't taking skulls or artifacts or anything else. However, there was a skull in a private collection that came out of Peru 
um, probably in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The guy's grandfather was a medical doctor, bequeathed it to him. And the guy, the medical doctor died when, in, in like 1990-something or other. So this guy's had this skull for years hanging around. It's a greatly elongated skull. It's actually on the cover of Watchers 10. And it came out of La Oroma, Peru. And we, have, we were allowed access to that. We drove to a nondescript, undisclosed location in Oregon. Uh, we were presented with the skull. The owner of the skull was there. And we were allowed to take DNA samples. So we've got the hair uh, from, from the Paracas um, Museum, and then we've got the powder that we took. What's interesting about this is that the DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, which is, comes from the maternal side, the mother's side, shows a European haplogroup, a European haplogroup. The powder from the elongated skull found in Oregon was T2B which is uh, Turkey and Syria, the Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. That's rewrite history. Now, <clears throat> academics will look at this and, you know, say that the samples were contaminated, wasn't done right, you know, why don't we have access, where's the peer review paper, blah, blah, blah. We already know that. Well, first of all, we can't do a peer review paper because two of the labs, the DNA labs that we employed, that we paid, will not write us reports because they don't want to be associated with us. There you go. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's very, the lab, whole peer review process is incredibly political. The third lab, which is in your neck of the woods, in Thunder Bay, Canada, ah. came on the record, voted for them, Lakehead University, came on the record, let us go to the lab, explain the whole PCR deal with, with genetics and how it worked and, Stephen Frappietro, Renee Frappietro, husband and wife team, they came on the record. They showed us uh, how the powder was extracted, why it's T2B, that the powder from, the, from that Oregon skull, which was, you know, T2B, half group, was probably the most uncontaminated. That skull has been handled by who knows how many people over the years. It was also kept in a box with a Native American skull and just a, a, a modern-day human. And all this stuff is just being jostled around. <clears throat> so there's cross-contamination all over the place. But when you go with a Dremel tool, turn the skull upside down and go in, and then blow that out with compressed air, and then go in again and take that powder from the inside of the skull. That's what we set up to the lab. And Frappietro states on the record that that's our best shot of getting uncontaminated DNA. But we've got the hair from Paracas showing a European haplo group. Here's why it matters. Let me get a slur. Here's why it matters. The Darwinian theory states that at the end of the last ice age, Asians came across what is known as the Bering Land Bridge, the Beringian Land Bridge. Right. In other words, where the Bering Strait is now was dry land. They crossed over and trickled down the Americas and settle it. All the Native American tribes, that's how everybody came over. That's right. what we're taught. That's the best, that's basically Darwinism 101. That's how, you know, Europe or North America, Central America, South America was populated. Guys like Thor Heyerdahl, who wrote Contiki and later on Raw, said, no, wait a minute. People could have built boats and sailed over here, and he proved it in both Contiki and Raw. In Raw in particular, he built an equivalent 
a scale model of an Egyptian papyrus boat and sail that thing from Egypt across the Atlantic and on up in Barbados without a compass, without doing anything. The trade winds will just take you there, okay? So he proved that, that it could be done. Fascinating stuff. Our hypothesis has always been that Nephilim tribes fled the Levant, fled the promised land when Joshua and Caleb went into it. And they were given a mandate by the God of the Old Testament, who's also the God of the New Testament, by the way, to wipe everybody out, men, women, and children. That's right. Burn all the, kill all the animals, burn everything. Why? Because they're all genetic hybrids. Smite, smite, smite. Exactly. Listen, yeah. uh, sorry, LA, I got to jump in again. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue to discuss uh, the Nephilim and the Paracas skulls. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-740. 740. Welcome back. L.A. Marzulli is with us, author, lecturer, filmmaker, and uh, the new book, Nephilim Hybrids, and uh, also uh, Watchers 10, up to number 10 now. And you can order uh, the whole series, the DVD set, Watchers 1 through 10, at uh, the website lamarzuli.net, L-A-Marzulli, M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. All right, we're talking about the Paracas skulls and uh, the... Uh, the Bering Strait, the land bridge, and how uh, versus sort of the Contiki theory, and how the these the Nephilim may have gotten here. Uh, they fled the uh, the Holy Land uh, when the Israelites were ordered to you know to to smite every man, woman, and child living in these these villages. And now it it, it makes great sense. You know why would a loving God order every man, woman, and child to be destroyed? And uh, well, if they're Nephilim, it makes perfect perfect sense. All right, so. Yeah. Continue on. They're, they're hybrid, in my opinion, the inhabitants of the promised land are hybrid entities, which never were supposed to be created in the first place. Um, some people also call them the soulless ones. And for all I know, they may be. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating here. The bottom line is they are anathema. They are cursed. And that's why the mandate comes down. And people have had a problem with that mandate because they didn't understand what the Nephilim were. It's basically a satanic hybrid, a fallen angel hybrid, which isn't supposed to be there. So the fact that Thor Heyerdahl proves from his book, Raw, that you can sell from Egypt and wind up in the New World is telling. It, it flies against the Darwinists who insist that that can't possibly be, that people really didn't do that. In fact, I did a, there's a book I have in my library, it's basically Archaeology 101, and by the 30th page, the, uh, the author of this book has already you know, made it really clear that uh, this type of stuff never happened. Uh, the, stuff, the, the antics of Thor Heyerdahl are just, just antics, that that never happened, that people really didn't do this. And I, you know, it's nonsense. Says who? Says you? Why? Because a bunch of academics decide that this is the paradigm that they're going to promulgate, 
and anything that goes against that, they will. It's just like a climate change deal, right? If you go against climate change, you're in the end of thought. Well, the science seems to be flawed, and that's why I'm not buying it, for one. And, and, and many other scientists are not buying the whole climate change. But that's, you know, politically correct to even go against that. Well, Darwinism is the prevailing paradigm in both the scientific community and academic community. It's where everything, you know, the world runs on Darwin, basically. That's, that's the paradigm which the scientific community embraces and the academic community embraces. Uh, ben Stein's movie Expelled, and I'm always hailing back to Ben Stein's movie because the guy's done the work and he's done an exemplary job, uh, a stellar and superlative job uh, on this, uh, the idea of exposing the subtitle is no intelligence allowed. Right. Exposing this intellectual dishonesty, what I would call intellectual fascism, uh, in, in, in the world of academia. Because if, if you say anything like even just mention intelligence design, whoop, you lose your tenure. You can be fired just for mentioning intelligence design. Now, why, you know, that's, that's no intelligence allowed. That's intellectual fascism. So the fact that we've come up with the fact that we've gone out. Now, we, we've got a, a guy, and a husband and wife, that has backed us financially. That's why we're able to do some of what we're doing. Because all this stuff costs thousands of dollars to do. And thank you for these, this wonderful team, uh, this wonderful husband and wife team, who donated a sizable chunk of money to allow us to do this. And I've been extremely penurious with the money. I've never taken a penny uh, as a salary. Uh, you know, when we finance an expedition to Peru, it comes out of that particular fund, if it's DNA that we're doing, and that's, that's what we're doing. So all that being said, the Paracas uh, hair samples and the sample from uh, the La Aurora skull from Peru, the greatly elongated skull, that's an actual, um, um, you see, like, yeah, it really, it doesn't, it, it's there, but it doesn't really show up. But the bottom line is, it, it, it flies in the face of the Darwinian theory because uh, the, one of the hairs that we tested was 2,000 years old, 1935 years old, okay? And that showed a uh, European haplogroup. So that doesn't work with, with the Beringian land bridge. Exactly. It work. Exactly. Someone from Europe traveled to Peru. They're not supposed to be there, Richard. They're not supposed to be there. Not so till 1492, exactly. What we've discovered rewrites history on some level. And it really does. The La Aurora skull was carbon-14 dated about 850 years. So I'm not making this stuff up. That's where the science has led us so far. And, Richard, you got to understand something. We're not going, hey, we've got this theory that we'd like to try to prove. No one knows what our hypothesis is. We just present the hair samples and say it's paleo-DNA, uh, you know, ancient DNA. Can you extract it? They don't know what it is. They have, they have no dog in the hunt at all. None. They didn't know what they were looking at until they gave us the results. And then we showed them. They were going, oh, my gosh, where did you get this? And, and you know, who wouldn't? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Okay, so the, the, mitochondrial, the mitochondrial DNA uh, is a haplo-European uh, ancestry. But what about the nuclear DNA? We couldn't get any. The nuclear DNA from the, uh, the powder, we were able to, to sequence a little bit of it a little bit of it, enough to know that it was a male, uh, but that's it. It was We couldn't coax any any more sequencing out of what we found. It was very, very fragmented. 
And see, that's what's maddening about it. What we've learned through this is you need a whole lot of material to, to get nuclear. And even then, there's no guarantee. Nuclear DNA degrades like crazy. And, 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 it's, and it's, hard to, it's hard to extract when you get it. Sometimes it'll sequence, sometimes it won't, because it's deteriorated, it's so broken down. Difficult, difficult to get, but that's where the prize is. And, and we think we can get it. So, you know, we've got permits that we're trying to get down in Peru. Uh, we, we will take the team back down there. We've got other sites in the Americas on private property that we're working with. Um, we're on the trail, man. That's what we do. We're on the trail. And what else about these Paracas skulls stand out? In other words, the, you know, there is the, 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 the theory that, oh, these are just these are normal humans and their, their heads were bound in order to produce this effect. They were bound at a very early age to, to elongate the skull for who knows for what reason. But is there anything else, for example, about the, the bone density or anything else that, that, that basically says, no, these are not normal human skulls? This is the model one-to-one model to give you an idea of, of, of what it looks like, how greatly elongated the skull is. You'll also notice here that there's no, there's no sagittal suture. In other words, when I talk about a suture, this is a suture here, right? This is called the frontal plate. Now, this suture should go from this area here straight back like this, and this is called the sagittal suture. That's what should be there. Guess what? No sagittal suture, not even a remnant of it. Now, the skeptic will say, well, you know, there's a disease called craniosynostosis. Okay, I get that. And that, that's a disease. But does that mean everyone had craniosynostosis when they were in Peru? Because we saw numerous skulls without a sagittal uh, suture. So, okay, you know, that's convenient. Uh, that may be what's going on. But we found something else, and this is the work of Rick Woodward. No one examined the foramen magnum. The foramen magnum is this area right here, right there, okay? Right. Right here. Now, it's been packed with clay, and that's a dowel hole. That's what that is. But the outer area, let me just tip it this way. Okay. This area right here is the way it's supposed to look. We didn't touch it. That's, that's inside, it's been packed so you can fit a dowel and mount the thing. But here... All around it is exactly the way the foramen magnum looks. The foramen magnum is where the spinal column comes up through the neck and attaches right, right, at, the base of, right at the base of the foramen magnum, like that. And that's where and that's, you drilled for the bone powder, for the DNA, correct? Well, we drilled right around in here someplace. Okay. Right next to it, right in this area, all right? The foramen magnum. And this is the work of Rick Woodward, who comes on the record in Washington's 10, and also the book, Nephilim Hybrid, shameless plug. Where is it? Right there. And so Rick Woodward comes up, and a couple of things. First of all, the foramen magnum here is in a totally different location. It's moved further back to the occipital plate. This is to the occipital plate in the rear. See how close it is to the occipital plate? It's almost, it's, it's a normal human, a normal um, foramen magnum in a human skull is placed differently. It's, it's more forward. It's like right in this area here. Right. So the foramen magnum is not only much, much smaller, it's also placed further back in the skull. And the paracas skulls all showed the same aberration. Now, is it conclusive? Nothing's ever conclusive. What it's showing 
according to Rick Woodward, is that this is genetic. This isn't the result of cradle headboarding. When they take when they take the, the artifact, they take the skull and they wrap it with, with plant life or, or you know rope or whatever, and they mold the skull. Okay, we get that. By the way, this skull here was 25 to 30 percent more cranial capacity than a normal human being. So you can right. elongate a skull, you can shape it, but you can't. You can't increase you can't, the volume. You know, add cranial capacity. Exactly. To the skull. You exactly. Can't do that. So. You know, it was interesting. There was a guy that wrote a hit piece on us um, and, and said something like, there's nothing new and all this other stuff. One of the most disingenuous articles on us that I've ever read. And we actually had to post it on the blog because my, my business partner read it. He was infuriated. And it became apparent that the so-called researcher had never seen Launcher's 10 nor read the book. But as typical as the skeptic and the scoffer is, he's so sure he knew all about it. Right. Yeah. And, and what he wrote was just a hit piece, which was incredibly, dis, you know, intellectually dishonest. Because in the book, I actually re- reproduce verbatim the report given to us from Lakehead University. You can read it for yourself. The the the, the results of the test are T to B from the powder, and it differentiates. It, it's different than the other samples that were taken from that same skull, and that's why we were all we were all confused, including the geneticists. And then we realized that the jaw might have been different, that the, every, every other part of the skull could have been contaminated because of where this thing was kept. But the powder, the powder was fresh, Richard. The powder came out, we showed it on the video. The powder came out of basically a place in the skull that the only way you can get to it is with a dremel bit. Fresh, fresh material came out. That showed T, T2B. Yeah, no contamination there, no DNA contamination. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, those hit pieces, as you call them, that's that's what I call that panic. That's panic from the other side because, you know, it's amazing how uh, how quickly things start to unravel when they're held together by lies. And, and everything that you're offering up just flies against, you know, their narrative. And now it's starting to quickly unravel. Uh, and L.A., that makes you a very a dangerous and courageous person. I appreciate that. Thank you, Richard. Uh, so, once again, let's uh, remind people, can they order Nephilim hybrids off the website as well? Yeah, absolutely. L.A. net, and, of course, uh, Watchers 1 through 10 DVD set, also available there. And please follow uh, Lynn's blog, some great, uh, great articles. Lynn, as always, thank you so much. Great, great for, Thanks, Richard. Take I appreciate care. you spending some time with us. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Jonathan Franz, all of you for listening at home. Back next week with the legendary Jim Mars and also Rosemary Ellen Guiley. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.